Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Life's busy. Take this deck. There's heaps to do on it, like um, polishing off this wine. That's tough. Life's pretty good with a Trex deck. Composite decking with no hard maintenance. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. Thorpe is coming in gold and a world record. Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. ball in test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Australia is back on the biggest stage. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. for our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, we're joined by a highly distinguished member of the AFL's 200 Club. Neil Cordy played 139 games for Footscray as a high-flying wingman where he shared a Western Oval locker room with his brothers Graham and Brian. Today, the Cordy name lives on at the Western Bulldogs where Neil's nephew and Brian's son Zane is a regular in Luke Beveridge's lineup. But Neil Cordy, he also moved to the Sydney Swans where he made another 96 appearances but also played a huge role in TV, print and radio in promoting the game in New South Wales. Cords, a huge welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Sammy, great to be with you. So good to talk to you again. Set the scene for us though, will you? Where, where do we find you at the moment? On the Gold Coast, I'm pleased to report. Yeah, <laughs> just coming up to 12 months and... Uh... My wife Jeanette and I haven't stopped uh, patting each other on the back uh, since we arrived. When we, when we came up here, we went straight into quarantine in Brisbane and then came out in early September. So we had um, footy finals wall to wall on our doorstep, uh, and and then you know touch wood, we've we've uh, dodged uh, major COVID lockdown since. So is this the good life? This is retirement life, and you're only 62 <laughs> years of age up there, living the dream. It, it is, it is, Sam, but but. but uh, uh, it was a bit of competition uh, with my brother, you know, Brian, because he's uh, he's also retired from teaching and uh, I didn't want him getting in ahead of me. So <laughs> I think I beat him by a couple of months. Well, you're a long way for East Gippsland. We'll get to that in a moment. But both of your old mm. sides are going to play finals this year, Cord. So Zane, as we said, is running around for the mm. dogs uh, and the Swans are going to feature, of course. They've had a, an amazing season. Do you still follow it really closely from the living room? Yeah, yeah, very much so, yeah. It, it's interesting because in 2000, I, I was, you know, having having both the teams I played for play off. It was interesting because I, I, I was obviously connect through my family and really hoped the dogs were going to win because of Zane and 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 Brian. And but I still because it was it wasn't dissimilar to Barry Round or to, you talk to a lot of players and if they've had it at their second club, uh, that second club becomes the more uh, immediate attachment attachment. And then because I stayed in sporting, I was basically 
basically from the mid 90s mm. through to to now um i was more connected with them than i was at the bulldogs which was you know going way back to 1986 was the last year i played there so i had a really strong remote connection with the swans and also helped because that, that was an amazing period of, of success which which as you say still continues now with the, the current day swans have, have reinvented themselves absolutely they've had an incredible year we'll come back to them later i mentioned east gippsland specifically you grew up in rosedale so a good yep. what 16 1700 kilometers south of where you are now what was life like growing <laughs> up in, in that part of the world with uh with your brothers there called yeah it was pretty simple it was pretty simple uh yeah i we went to secondary school in sale i went all, all my brothers and I went to Sale Tech School. My sister went to uh, the high Sale High School. But if, for those people who know Gippsland, know that area, Rosedale, Halfway Vale and Corrogan. And I ended up playing junior football in Corrogan and senior football, largely because of my family connection to Corrogan, the Maroons. And uh, my father, uh, his brothers and my grandfather, Joe, um, all played uh, you know, long careers at uh, at Terralgan. So that was that was the senior club that I uh, played for before I went to the Bulldogs, which of course was the, the zone that uh, in those days that uh, the, the Bulldogs were attached to. And, and Terralgan had a lot of really players over that period. Bernie Quinlan was the first, uh, who's an absolute superstar. And then they had um, Kelvin Templeton, who yeah. was you know an absolute superstar as well. Uh, and then there was two other Rick Kennedy and Jeff Jennings both uh, captained the Bulldogs and, and they were all Corralgan players as well. So you find yourself, as you say, because you zoned a Footscray in the 1979 season. Do you remember when it first became clear that you were actually going to get a crack at it at the top level? Who came out and saw you for the first time and, and was it early or late in the piece? How did you actually find your way to the Western Oval as it was then? Yeah. when, when Well, the one thing about the zone thing, because it because there'd been players that had followed that pathway, even from my football club in particular, I, gr- I grew up barracking for Carlton, but the closer I got to the prospect of, of, of going to the VFL, the more I followed the fortunes of Footscray. And I remember going, it, because I, I turned up there in, at uh, the end of 1976, and I went, ended up going, and the Bulldogs played Carl at... Uh, Princess Park in round 22 and it was for those who a long time ago but it was actually a, a, a playoff for a finals berth and I, I said to myself I'm going to barrack for whoever wins and bizarrely it was a draw uh, which actually was enough to get Bulldogs into into the uh, 76 final. Unbelievable. So three years mm. later I think it was you find yourself at Footscray for the 1979 season. Now some of these names you mentioned yep. but you get there and Kelvin Templeton's coming off a 118 goals the year prior. Alan Stoneham's there, and there's a young Doug Hawkins. So how did you find the locker room there when you got there? What was it like as a a youngster coming in? Well, I actually got there in uh, 1977 and uh, and played two years of reserves. I made my senior debut in in 79, but it was a common thing um, in those days to get extended. And I'm glad I 
did that because physically I was nowhere near. I was always pretty skinny, but physically I was nowhere near sort of developed enough uh, to play senior football. I think Michael Tuck was a similar one as well, who, who played you know an unbelievable amount of games. But I think he he had a couple of seasons more. He played senior football as well at Hawthorne. But um, it was the, the the locker room was full of big personalities, and Laurie Laurie Sandlins was was captain. Kelvin Templeton was was. Uh, flying. And by the on the subject of Kelvin Temple and how he isn't in the uh, AFL Hall of Fame, mm. still beggars belief. He was such a dominant. He's one of the very few people who to win Coleman and Brownlow medal. Uh, and he was such a dominant uh, forward there for, for a couple of seasons there. Uh, when he, he he went from winning back to back Coleman medals and he kicked 115. Then they moved him out to centre half forward and he kicked 80 goals from centre half forward and won the Brownlow. And um, you know I, I think it's a massive oversight. The company that reached that sort of uh, pinnacle that Kelvin did tragic not. Not tragically, but unfortunately, injury cut his career short. But I think if he had longevity at uh, at Melbourne when he went there, he would almost certainly be. But I think it's still an oversight. I think Kelvin certainly should be in, in the Hall of Fame. So how would you describe yourself as a player, Neil? And no room for modesty here on this show. What, what were you good at? And perhaps, if I may ask, not so good at? Yeah, good question. <laughs> um, I think probably marking was... Was strength uh, like I, um, you know, I was pretty pretty strong overhead, and and I started off as as a, as a, as a half forward flank, and then played to the wing, played on the wing, and and played for Victoria on the wing, and probably played my best footy there, and then um, when. Uh, Mick Malthouse came to the dogs. I then moved back into defence more because Michael McLean uh, started and he played on the wing. And um, probably I, I was I, I wasn't wasn't um, if if there was a, a thing that I look back on, it was actually probably just uh, ambition. I, I I should have been a bit more uh, ambitious in terms of, of weaknesses. You know, pro- probably I wasn't that physically strong in a in a time in an era when physical strength really faded. You know, I think I think in the you know in modern footy, I know it's incredibly contested and competitive, but there there's more of a role for outside players and intercept players, which I think might have suited me better. But um, no, all in all, I, I, I was um, was wrapped to um, to get to uh, you know to play the amount of games that I didn't play for the number of seasons I did. And yeah, no no uh, real regrets other than the fact that um, we didn't get at the Bulldogs or the Swans the the ultimate team success that uh, would have liked. Eighty five was the close. I got to a grand final which was when the Bulldogs got beaten by Hawthorne uh, which started that um, in the prelim final started that run of, of outs to the dog in prelim finals which I think ended up running to seven before they got in You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life and it's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals a family owned business since 1934 Neil Cordy's move to the Swans and his part in arguably the biggest boil over in state of origin history is up next <laughs> You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. 
to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're with the former Bulldog, Swan, and media personality, Neil Cordy. So, Neil, how big of a home ground advantage was the Western Oval? The cramped away rooms, the cold showers, seemingly always a howling wind to one end of the ground. Did it Did it give you a real buzz playing there, knowing that you had a leg up right before the ball was bounced almost? Oh, no doubt about it. I think the wind was... There was another thing about the ground that... that uh, so a lot of other people don't, not that familiar with with the, the Western slash Witten Oval is just how long it was. It was very similar in dimensions uh, to uh, GMHBA Stadium, to Cadenia Park. It was very long and very narrow. So you really needed centre half forward was a, a more a very important position under those circumstances. You needed somebody who could really get around because you were when you got from the centre when when you're in the centre or come across the wings, you still had a long way to go to get to goal. It was usually clearly a couple of kicks to get there. But but to answer your question, it was really um, yeah, it was it was an unusual ground. It was often uh, windy and it was. Yeah, there was, and, and just that familiarity with the conditions you know, when you're kicking for goal uh, and wh- which were the better places to attack through uh, in that win, it was, was definitely an advantage. Now, some great old photos from back in the day with you and Graham and Brian. Now, that must have been special. Brian mm-hmm. played 124 games for the club, but Graham just the uh, six. Now, your first game together was round seven, 1985. What are your memories of mm-hmm. that? I think it was a 50 point win over Richmond. Richmond. Oh, Richmond. Yeah. Yeah, that, okay. At the MCG. Yeah, yeah and, and the dogs sure. the dogs kicked twenty three mm. goals and you won by fifty. Yeah, it it, it was good it, um, because Graham was just a little bit uh, unlucky, just with he, he could unlucky with injury and just selection and and times. You really need, and I think this is true of any uh, player in their developing years. You really need to get into a period where you can get um, at least into double figures of consecutive games to get that sense of, of belonging and comfortable being comfortable at the level. If you're continually being a yo-yo player and coming up for two or three and then going back through injury or being dropped, then it's really difficult to get your your uh, equilibrium. But um, it, it, it's funny, Graham ended up playing, after he went to the Swans with me in 87, ended up playing uh, 26 games in total. And that that figure actually became significant because in the centenary celebration, VFL then, or the AFL, put a dinner on for all the players to celebrate it and they set a limit at 25 senior games for those people <laughs> to, to attend. So he actually, so the, the three of us got to sit down on at the uh, AFL's expense and celebrate the thing and he got it. We all got a tie and it was a great day. And I remember KB uh, making an opening address for the dinner and he, and he said I'd like to acknowledge uh, another function at t- tonight which is going on the other side of town for, with all those blokes who played 24 or less <laughs> including including uh, people like Jeff Geeshan and, and Simon O'Donnell and uh, it was uh, it was funny so that was so the 26 actually turned out to be not such a bad number in the end for, for Graham I love it and you mentioned the move to Sydney in 87 how, how did that come about for you, Cords, what was the motivation yeah. behind that, and was it a, a yeah. smooth move north? Oh, it, it was pretty easy. I, I um, it was that last year in '86. 
I'd fallen out of favour and, and play probably most of the back half of the season in the twos. So it was just not getting a game. And, and I was 28 at the time. And, and I actually was happy to move interstate. Um, I actually spoke with uh, Shane O'Sullivan and Peter Knights at the at the Bears, uh, as well as speaking to Ron Thomas at um, at the Suns, uh, and, and sorry, at the Swans, and, and uh, ended up going to Sydney, which, which turned out to be you know, probably one of the best moves I've ever, if not the best move I've made in my life. The other thing that's, that's interesting about when you change club, and, uh, and I've spoken to a lot of players about this, one thing is that you do, is it, it was the first adult decision I'd made in my life in, in that it was the first, everything else that, that had happened in my football career and life had been the natural thing to do. I didn't have any choice with the club I went to because I was zoned for Footscray. I finished finished uh, my VCE and ended up applying to get into physical education at um, then FIT, now Vic Uni, and it was just the logical thing to do. And then by the time I got to 28 and wasn't getting a game, I, I had to, you know, it was I'd got to a crossroad point. And by actually doing that and choosing the club you go to and moving into state, it's something that it's it's something that you have to own. So you are, it's your decision. There's nobody else to blame but yourself. And you have to make it work, which is often why I think guys that yeah to go to a second club can often have better uh, experiences. Well, you settled in relatively quickly because I think you were runner-up in the best and fairest in your, in your first year up there in 87. But it was Capamania mm. in the Harbour City, wasn't it, Warwick? It was larger than it life. He, he kicked more than 100. He probably took just as many hangers. What was it like coming into yeah. that, that environment? It was It was fun. It was really fun, and and for those people who don't know uh, Warwick, I mean, we know that everybody knows the public persona, and to some degree, that was his. That you know, it wasn't an act. He was that was Warwick around the place, but he was he was a real. I, I, I got on really well with him, and and uh, gets a bit underrated how good he was in those couple of years in in uh, eighty six and eighty seven, where he I think one hundred and three and. 1996. So he'd end up kicking, you know, roughly 200 goals in two seasons. And doesn't matter what era it is, anybody that can that can chalk up that milestone is really good. But it was it was fun, and it was a you know it was a bit of a circus. But it was um, you know we were still playing uh, that that Swans team was still playing really good football. And it was really disappointing on reflection when I look at the ability of that team. You know that we had Greg Williams, uh, we had Jared Hill. We had David David Murphy on the wing, David Bolt, we had Bernard Tui, Rod Carter, Tony Morwood, Stevie Wright. Uh, there was so many. It was such a good team uh, that, we, and we played. We got the double chance in '86 and '87. But in those days, because it was still VFL, uh, we never got to play any final in Sydney. They were all played at the uh, at the MCG, and and the four finals. Swans played in 86 and 87. We lost them all. Now, you put on the big V twice, I think, but I wanted to ask you about 1990, Neil. So first year of the (laughs) AFL and South Australia didn't want to play Victoria, I don't think, because at that time they wanted no part in the national competition. So as a result, the Mm. big V plays, well, a fledgling Aussie rule state in New South Wales. And this was supposed to be Mm. an absolute cakewalk, except it wasn't. Now, you're playing for the Sky Mm. Blues. It's a wet night at the SCG and New South Mm. Wales stunned the Vicks by 10 
points. It was a massive upset. Mm, it was. It was. That was. Uh, I've just funny, funnily enough, read a couple of yarns on on that particular night, and it was memorable for a lot of occasions. One was was the fact that John Longmire playing on Steve Silvani, and I think Danny Frawley and and Chris Langford had a go at him. So he's playing against A grade uh, defenders, kicks eight on a really wet and and uh, wintry night, and it was it was obviously a match winning performance, but. The game is also worthy of note because it was the first time that all the Danaher brothers uh, played together, Terry, Neil, uh, Chris and Anthony. Uh, They ended up playing one uh, for Essendon. I think it was later that year when Mm -hmm. uh, they played round 22 and all four brothers played uh, for the Bombers. But that particular night, um, that was the first time all four uh, Danaher brothers played. And it was, um, it was, it was a great, it was a, just a fantastic occasion. There was, there was another worthy of another couple of things that were of interest because Wayne Carey also played in that game as, as a, uh, I think it would have been 19, uh, maybe even 18 because mm. he'd only played about a dozen games and played off the bench. And funnily enough, he wore number 26 that night for New South Wales because that was Steve Wright's number at the Swans. And and uh, the Duck remembered a clinic that uh, the Swans did when he was a kid growing up in Wagga. And Stevie took him aside for 10 or 15 minutes at the end of the session and just, you know, uh, had a kick around and a bit of a chat with him and made him feel a bit special about it all. But um, it was it was an incredible night. I, I remember uh, the, the act of the odds on the night, which which uh, a, a few of us managed to uh, take advantage. I think it, was, it wasn't illegal back in those days to actually bet on yourself. Yeah. But we were... We were Seven to one and a fifty-five point. The line was fifty-five points, and even and the and the fact that it had actually been raining literally all day in uh, Sydney, and and to see have that fifty-five point margin was uh, was fairly juicy. <laughs> you know, this is your sporting life, brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You can find them at tobinbrothers.com.au. Well, from playing for the Swans to reporting on them, Neil Cordy hangs up the boots and picks up the mic. The move to the media is up next. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with former Footscray and Swans player Neil Cordy. So, Cords, crossing from the Dogs to the Swans, the two clubs you played for were hardly blue chip. I mean, money or the lack of it was a near, well, I suppose a near constant dark cloud that hung low, wasn't it? I mean, how was that as a, as a player? Were you able to block that out from time to time or did it often infiltrate the, 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 the room, the change rooms and the morale of the place? Yeah, good question, Sam. It... it um well, one th- one thing uh, it, it, it wasn't surprising that uh, that uh, that those two teams had the um, the longest premiership. Uh, drought up, you know, up until the Swans got up in 2005, and that ended the 72-year drought. And then it was uh, it was 60, uh, 61 for the for the Dogs going back to 54. Uh, so it was, you know, to say that it didn't 
provide, you know, the playing group at BLI. It, it you know, it just uh, there is a is an influence. You know, you pretty much, you know, uh, you've got a good and and um, the the uh, the Bulldogs. It was interesting. I'm, I'm writing a story at the moment about. Um, about the influence that the Neil Saxe uh, incident had on the players. And I've been writing uh, uh, stories for the Bulldogs past players. And the just a couple of people that I've been speaking to, which is Laurie Sand and, uh, and Peter Featherby, unsolicited, they told me it wasn't until the end of their careers, or in Laurie's case, he, he, he certainly suffered post-traumatic stress disorder from what had happened to Neil, uh, you know, when he had that terrible accident in 1975 against Fitzroy when he became a quadriplegic. And Laurie and he were very close. And he said definitely influenced him in the way he played football. And he said it made him scared of two things. A, being scared of, of that happening to him, but B, doing it to somebody else. And doing it to, to an opponent, and Peter Featherby went on to uh, play at Geelong and had had success at Geelong as well. But he said he didn't realise at the time just how traumatic it was. And when you look back at that period of the Dogs in the, the mid seventies, they had the talent that the Dogs had was unbelievable. They had two guys in Bernie Quinlan, Barry Round, who'd left the club, and both had enormously successful career. Uh, it was a really talented list. And, and I think it's it's fair to say that, that particularly that mid to late 70s group was um, was really, uh, really underachieved. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and at the... Um, at the Swamp, I think, as I was saying a little earlier, the, the, the quality of players that, that we had, you know, the midfield of, of, of Healy and, and Williams, along with, with Murphy and Bolton on the wings, the, the Rod Carter in defence, Mark Bays at centre-half back, uh, Mark Browning. Uh, look, I could go through the whole team, but it was a really talented, talented group of players, and we definitely underachieved in in not in '86 and '87 in not winning. Um, any finals. And just for you at the Swans, you chose to play on in 93. You managed just the one game in round seven. Uh, what got you in the end? I think you were nearing 34 at this point. Yeah, I think I was the oldest player in the comp at that stage, Sam. I think it was might have been Tony Shaw and <laughs> I think I might have been fractionally older, but to, to, to actually... Uh, I, I wanted to get a hundred games at the uh, mm. at the Swannies, and unfortunately, um, I fell short of that. And 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 uh, that's just the way it goes. But I got to play in '93. Got to play under Ron Barassi, who who was a, a boyhood hero of mine, being a uh, being a Carlton supporter, and uh, you know the success that he had there. So it was, as I said to Barassi, I played one game under him and. Uh, and he finished my career up. So, and I counted that uh, as an honour. <laughs> so, life after footy courts. I mean, it can be a time, as we know, of anxiety and uncertainty for many. How did you find yourself on, I guess, our side of the fence and reporting on the game? Mm. Because you would go on to do it, I think, for nearly three decades. And as I said off the top, mm. you did a tremendous job in all three mediums. But how did the move um, come to pass initially? Yeah, when I when I was, I'd always been. I'm actually a school teacher by profession, but. I'd always been interested in in uh, 
in the media in terms of you know always read the papers always listened to the to and followed the stories and followed the news um, on in the media and and when I was getting towards the end I actually uh, um, rang up the uh, sports editor at uh, at the Sydney Morning Herald and ended up writing uh, a a weekly column just on on the swans and then when i finished up i uh in 93 next year i, I worked for abc radio and then doing special comments and then the following year i worked for channel 7 as a, as a boundary rider um on the scg games which was a really um a really good experience in live tv uh which sort of Took me, gave me a good experience, uh, a lead into the next job, which was working for Channel 10 uh, in the Melbourne. That's when I moved from, from Sydney back to Melbourne to work for 10 News and Sports Tonight. Dermot O'Brien, who was the news director, gave me a uh, gave me my start, uh, which I'm forever grateful for him. And, and I, I didn't really, I read the papers and, and watched the news, but didn't really know what news was. And he gave me some really good pieces of advice. And the first one he said was, he said, he said, I want you to get your contact book, and I want at the end in 12 months' time, I said, I want more than a hundred contacts from yeah. around the footy clubs. And he said, he said, news doesn't happen here in the office; it happens out there. So he said, I want you to go to every training session you can go to, get around and talk to people, get phone numbers and break news. And um, it, was, it was a really good uh, lesson. And I was also there working with, with Steve Quartermain, uh, Peter Donegan as well, who, who were, these two guys are just such um, great of, of uh, the industry. And it was, it was terrific. I, I couldn't have had a better apprenticeship in those first five or six years in the newsroom that I did at uh, at Channel 10. And Jared Waitley, I worked with uh, later on there. Craig, Craig Hutchison was also at uh, at Channel 10. So it was it was a really good, uh, and I learned a lot from from uh, those guys as well. So it was it was a great um, a great experience. Yeah. So you're on the beat there, down back down here in Melbourne, as you say. Did you find yourself if we put the Year of the Dogs on? Do, do we see us? Mm. Do you make a few cameos in Year of the Dogs? Funnily enough, I I did. Yeah, yeah. It was quite a uh, yeah, well. As anybody that's seen Year of the Dogs uh, and knows what a, a tumultuous year it was. And and uh, it's funny. I knew the uh, a filmmaker Michael Cordell. Uh, who's who's now you know he's gone on to have um, even greater success as a um, a TV uh, producer. He does um, Bondi Rescue, which is now sold to about twenty odd countries around the world. Some massive success, and he he was uh, a, a really good uh, um, TV producer. So I got a cameo, and and it was really interesting uh, working with him. His his uh, wife is Jenny Mackesy, who's who is also a, was a, a sports journalist of, of note at the Australian for many. That's right. We're talking to Neil Cordy on yep. This Is Your Sporting Life, and it's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We'll be back with Neil Cordy right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. 
Smith, great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Neil Cordy is our guest today. So, Neil, we left the conversation before the break talking about your foray into the media, but then you moved back up to Sydney. And I wanted to ask you, given um, you played for the club and it's a, 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 well, really a new market in terms of uh, the AFL up there. How did you cope writing or reporting on stories that weren't complimentary of the Swans? And were there some tricky moments there? Oh yeah, without a doubt. It's particularly, um, particularly when oh man, it's funny we had um, run-ins right from the get-go. Uh, I remember um, I reported that uh, that Tony Lockett was out with broken ribs, and we'd already got. Rodney Ede on the record on on, on the camera, um, you know, denying that it that it was was the case, and it was a, it was a it was a tricky line because, you know, broken ribs is a you know a vulnerable uh, position for any footballer to be in because as soon as that's made public, um, you know, there's a target on that player's back if you're going to play with with that sort of an injury. Um, even though you know Tony could look after himself pretty well, but um, that was it was just one of those scenarios where I couldn't not report it. Mm. But um, you know, Rodney Eade said, you know, I, I wasn't welcome in the uh, in the rooms uh, anymore, and you know this and that. But and then there were other other stories when there was. I don't know if you remember when. Uh, Paul Ruse had, had left the um, Swan, left the coaching as coach of the Swans, and was uh, on his way to Melbourne. And there was some personnel um, that were going, and there was a bit of tension between the Swans and Ruse and the personnel, and and between uh, Richard Collis and Ruse. And uh, I reported some things that uh, that Richard had said, which understandably. Um, uh, uh, Rusey uh, took exception to. So, um, but that's just, as you know, that's just part of part of the game. And 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 uh, you can't not. I remember having a, also a, a big run in with Eddie Maguire over when when uh, when I think it was Andrew Pridham, uh mm. described him as the Clive Palmer of the AFL, and uh, the Telly's art department. You know, got uh, got some pretty, uh, you know, well, it wasn't it wasn't favourable uh, yeah. artwork from yeah. the point of view, and riding a riding a, rec, uh, a wrecking ball. But um, that's just that's just the way why it is in the business. It was Andrew Pridham. You know, I could not not report that yeah. Andrew Pridham had called, but but you know, Eddie Eddie. Um, Eddie uh, shot back at me and called me the. Uh, what did he call me? He said my match reports were like Joffa riding it for Collingwood games, which which was actually pretty funny. Interesting but, um, sledge. Well, but I suppose, cause in that position that you're in, and especially after playing there, you you as well as anyone would have an appreciation of just what a struggle the code was having north of the Murray. So you're promoting mm-hmm. the game there, but you're also as a journalist trying to strike the balance of needing to be objective. So I imagine this was a constant mm-hmm. wrestle for you all the way through. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was, it was a week, a, a weekly one. And, and um, you can't, it, it, as to, to have any credibility as a journal, you can't just be writing 
uh, PR for for the club. Uh, it, it, and there's not every story is is uh, is good news. There was, you know, in fairness, in that period of, of 25 years, there's been a lot of good news mm. uh, stories for the Sydney Swans and and also for for the GWS Giants. Uh, uh, but it was it was something that. Um, it's interesting now because with the, the the media landscape and particularly post COVID, uh, the unfortunately the the situation on the ground in Sydney is not great at all in terms of representation uh, in the in the broader media in Sydney. It's uh, it's probably actually at the, uh, despite the fact that um, you know the Giants and Swans could be both playing finals there. I, I'd say that the representation in the media of of you know, footy journalists is really uh, light on, and back to the the very early days of of um, of the Swans' arrival in in mm. Sydney. Uh, Cords, am I right in saying you broke the story on Lance Franklin and his move to Sydney? Probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest, story the player movement space that the game has seen. Yeah, yeah, I did. It was funny because um, it ran in the in the Daily Telegraph and. It didn't run in the Herald Sun, uh, which was a bit of a surprise to me. Well, what, what was I the first? Par- well, what was the first paragraph? Do you remember what was the was stated it as fact that he was joining Sydney? Yeah, I'll, wow. I'll uh, when I get off air, I'll send you the back page. Yeah, but it right. was the the uh, it, it um yeah I, I had it I, I had it confirmed mm. uh, because because the story I've been following the story for um, literally months and I knew that there was a, a big name player coming to the Swans and then by uh, it's almost a process of elimination and, and joining dots I knew that um, that it was Lance that was coming because everybody was expecting to be going if he did go uh, to go to the Giants and uh, and then I got confirmation uh, of the move, not of the actual nine-year, ten million dollar contract, contract, but I got confirmation from the Swans uh, the night before uh, the story ran mm. the following day. And of all the stories you did break and report on, I, I did read, and um, we all read it at the time. There was one you chose not to, and it was a tragic night at the SCG in two thousand and four, and it was the the late mm. head trainer Wally Jackson. He suffered a heart mm. attack in the first quarter of a game against North Melbourne. Now mm. you were working mm. the boundary for Channel Ten and. And you look mm. over and there's obviously Swans doctor Nathan Gibbs trying to revive Wally on the mm. bench. Just a terrible, mm. um, a terrible night, a tragedy. But as a working journalist at the time, you chose not to cover it. Can you take us back in mm. time to what happened on the night? Yeah, yeah, sure. It, it was, well, it, it literally happened um, right next to the interchange bench and, and but. The swans. It happened actually, I think, in the third quarter. So every single swan that went through the interchange bench could see what was happening, and it was so obvious because there was, it was right next to the fence, and Nathan Gibbs was doing CPR, um, you know, on him for uh, at least half an hour. And fortunately, fortunately, we had David Barham, uh, who was EPing that particular coverage that night and so I spoke to David about it and uh, and, and David became uh, head of sports at, at, uh, at, at uh, 10 and, and uh, he's still one of the best in the business and and um, he asked me he asked me uh, did Wally have any family and were they there at the game and uh, 
I said, I know he's got a couple of kids. He's got a couple of sons and a wife. And I, I didn't know if they were actually uh, there by the side of the fence. They could have been. But I didn't even know if, if they were at the game. And uh, basically, Dave and I resolved that we would only report on it if, because it was grave. You, you could tell that um, Wally wasn't responding. Uh, and while I were waiting for the ambulance, which I think took about half an hour to get there, and it was it, it, it looked it looked really bad. And uh, and Dave said if it, if we'll report on it if it stops the game. And uh, that didn't eventuate. And it turned out his his family weren't there, so it wouldn't have been much fun finding out that news uh, mm. via the TV screen. So and in, in the end, I was I was you know really pleased that with with the outcome. Yeah, it was a great decision. So the 05 Grand Final, the Swans break a 72-year premiership drought cords. Lot, lots of tears at the MCG that day. I think you're on the boundary for 10. How did you manage to, uh, I guess, maintain your composure? Yeah, it was funny because uh, I, uh, yeah, I was obviously emotionally uh, involved as, as a player and, and uh, the, or as a former player. And, uh, of course, it finished in such dramatic circumstances with... Uh, Leo Barry taking that mark, and then and then um, I remember I asked Leo if he'd ever uh, at any stage considered punching the ball and or spoiling, and uh, he said no. <laughs> and it was and he clearly made the uh, the right choice uh, in uh, in yeah. plucking that ground. And 2016 for your other mob to get mm. there and Zane to be playing, mm. and I think he had a. A great mm. prelim final, which I think you might have also been there that night when he bobbed up to kick, kick a couple of goals that night. For them to win it in mm. 2016 uh, must have been special mm. as well. What was your role on that day? Did you have one or just there as a fan? Yeah, I, I, um, yeah, I was reporting for the, for the yep. Daily Telegraph. So I was reporting. So I, I remember what my league was. It was the, uh, you know, because I'm writing for the Sydney paper, it was the 22 to 8 free kick count that, that uh, <laughs> went, went against the uh, against the swamp. So it, it was, but I was, you know, couldn't have been more over the moon uh, that uh, that um, they got. In fact, the um, I posted it on Twitter because Zane played his hundredth game uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, and I posted this photo of of Zane on the boundary with my with his dad Brian and uh, Ace, who'd been cut by it. Mm. Had, seven years at the dogs and been cut the year before. And this was only Zane's 11th senior game. And of course, the last four had been, uh, had been all finals and, and cutthroat finals. And I remember talking to Brian pre, uh, remember the circumstances leading up to that first elimination final in Perth, the dogs had played Frio the week before. Yep. and had their asses kicked. And then the next week, you know, they were such... Uh, the Eagles were being talked about as, you know, pr- premiership, uh, you know, potential premiership winners. And I asked Brian if he's going to go uh, across to Perth to watch the game. You know, he lives at, lives at Ocean Grove. And he, he said, yeah, I'd better go across. This might be the only final he ever plays in. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and lo and behold... Uh, you know, four weeks later, 
there we are at the uh, at the MCG, and Zane's playing in his eleventh game, and and uh, and and it's a particular, uh, a, a, you know, a, a funny thing in our family is that Zane's listed as the centre half forward in the Premiership team, which <laughs> uh, which we all get get uh, get a bit of a laugh out of, you know, him and him and Royce Hart and uh, all those other <laughs> champion and Dermot Brereton and all those other champion. Uh, Centre half forwards. Indeed. Oh, what a magical month it was for the dogs. Cords, been a pleasure to catch up today. You had a fantastic career inside the fence, but outside it, um, and in retirement from the game, your influence has been just as profound. So well done on all you achieved, and thanks so much for joining us today. Good on you, Sam. It was fun. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Sporting Life. For Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives, just jump online to find them at tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate the life of another sporting icon. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.